0: to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, grizzled son of a bitch out for revenge <laughs> i'll kill you josh you are you I'll just kill your whole family you just got revenge on a burrito right before we recorded Cut your head
1: off and put it on a pike just to make an example out of you and everyone will see your stupid decapitated head on a pike and say don't mess with that grizzled son of a bitch he's out for
0: revenge wow okay well jason <laughs> taking it a little further really than the movie that we're about to talk about <laughs> In this season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1967, and this episode is my pick, which is a revenge uh, story of sorts. It's not really revenge so much as uh, payback, mm-hmm. uh, as we may reference later. Those are synonymous often. Kind of. But uh, it's a more dispassionate, I think, than revenge, than the way that you're uh, kind of presenting Okay, it but he is a grizzled son of a bitch. That he is. And he is Lee Marvin, who is the star of Point Blank. From director john borman based on the donald westlake aka richard stark novel the hunter uh which is about his famous character parker who is renamed here as walker for Good some movie. some reason real real different you know they really yeah. wanted to change it up you can't you don't want bad guys on
1: that parker no they parker gotta, they get gotta, get gotta say a parker right. yeah, yeah they
0: gotta say walker That's walker
1: see see how much better that is
0: so much better yes mm-hmm. So this is the uh, I believe is the first uh, adaptation of one of those books, which was a long running character for Donald Westlake, a.k.a. Richard Stark. Uh, And it was the second film by John Borman after his first film, Catch Us If You Can, starring the Dave Clark Five.
1: Yeah, I like the Dave Clark Five. They make me feel glad all over.
0: But definitely (laughs) not. As you were just expressing there in your grizzled voice, uh, different from a movie starring the Dave Clark Five, certainly.
1: Right. But, you know, the 60s, you know, this kind of Beatles. Yes, the uh, 60s. Thank you, Josh, <laughs> for cutting me off right before. Sorry. I said like go, two words. Go right. ahead. Go ahead. Yes, the 60s. You know nothing, you garbage monster. Go, go ahead. Uh, I'm saying, you know, Hard Day's Night. This was kind of the Dave Clark Five version. I think of that. I've never seen that movie I don't know how much the Dave Clark Five is actually in there, but it got good reviews that that Catch Us If You Can, right? Catch Me If You Can. Is that one of their songs? Yeah, that's what it's named after. Catch Us If You Can. So is Glad all over. That's why I reference it. Right. But I think it shows that Borman, who might not have gone on to become like a huge figure, had the capabilities of shooting different styles of movies, which we've seen Throughout his career.
0: That is true. And if you look at his whole career, you can see that. But to say this is the one thing that he did, he directed the Dave Clark Five movie, and now we're gonna get him to direct this crime revenge movie is uh, you know, is a bit of a stretch. And so uh, I think it worked out. Well, two
1: points there, Josh. One, imagine if it was a crime revenge movie starring the Dave Clark Five, you know, that would have been something. Not as good, probably. <laughs> um, also, when you're you're kind of saying, like, well, how did he go from this to this? You know, in the research, it's interesting because Lee Marvin was a huge star at the time. Right. And he basically had final cut carte blanche decision over script casting the whole time. Th- and he just went in and said like, John Borman gets all that. And then they're like, okay, you're Lee Marvin. So not only did he, was he able to direct this? He had basically had final cut on final say on everything.
0: Right. And, uh, because of his friendship with Lee Marvin, his association with Lee Marvin is why he's brought in, in the first place and why he gets that. So and I think, I mean, to me, at least, obviously, I think this movie is great. That's why I picked it. You know, that all paid off that whatever risk they took and whatever risk Lee Marvin took on saying this Dave Clark Five guy should uh, be in charge, it worked out. The movie was not a huge hit. It's weird. Wikipedia claims that it was a failure at the box office, but then uh, also says it grossed $9 million on its budget of $2.5 million. So... I mean, that seems pretty good to me. Maybe it was a disappointment compared, because as you say, Lee Marvin was a huge star. I think that's it, but it it was like when we talked about Slapshot in 77,
1: right? Like, one, not only did it make money, two, it it garnered cult status over time.
0: Right, and this certainly has gotten that cult status over the years, and critics were mostly into it. It's not surprising that critics kind of grabbed onto the approach to this movie, which takes that crime genre and puts almost like a French New Wavey spin on it. Um, So they were mostly positive. Uh, Roger Ebert had a more straightforward take on it. He said, The idea is, the organization has taken Lee Marvin's $93,000 away from him, and he wants it back. I want my money back, he snarls about 14 times during Point Blank. If they'd forked it over, there wouldn't have been a movie. And as suspense thrillers go, Point Blank is pretty good. It gets back into the groove of Hollywood thrillers, after the recent glut of spies, counter-spies, funny-spies, anti-hero-spies, and spy spyier spies Marvin is just a plain, simple, tough guy who wants to have the same justice done for him as was done for Humphrey Bogart. And, I mean, that's true, I guess, of the character who is deliberately kind of pared down or whatever, but I wouldn't call this a simple... Movie. I mean, I think that's the point of it is that it takes that artier approach. Yeah. And
1: in fact, there are certain times I wish it was simpler <laughs> to yeah. follow along with. You're like, wait, who's he going after? Where's this going? You know, but uh, the thing is that I found interesting in that is like Ebert's like, well, finally, we're back to normal, a straight up, you know, hard boiled thriller as opposed to all this spy, spy, blah, blah. And now it's like every movie is, you know, way more spy and superhero centric. And like something like this would be the outlier.
0: Right. Well, that's true. Yeah. This would be a movie that wouldn't get a big theatrical release. Maybe it would be, you know, those meat and potatoes kind of thriller action things end up uh, on streaming services rather than as major uh, studio releases. Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Lee Marvin. Sure. That is a thing that you just said.
1: <laughs> you're salty today. I'm you're, sorry. You're, 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 gonna, you're asking for uh,
0: it. I'm just, today. yeah, I'm just, winding you up to get revenge you're, you're on you're, you're me for my, my uh, insults on the podcast. Punch you right in the belly. Yeah, please, please don't. <laughs> um, so, other critics uh, grabbed on more to the artier uh, aspects of this movie. Uh, Andrew Saris in the Village Voice said. Point Blank begins more pretentiously than any picture I've seen this year, but I wound up liking it just the same. Borman seems to have completely digested the films of Alain Rene. He establishes a conventional Dishonor Among Thieves plot as if he were directing an Alain Robigrier script entitled Last Year at Alcatraz. Even with all the stylistic pyrotechnics that enable modern directors to tell stories backwards and sideways, the point of Point Blank never makes too much sense. But the forward momentum of Lee Marvin's mysterious vendetta against the skyscraper underworld manages to overcome Borman's laborious exposition. Point Blank has a meaningfully modern look to it as Marvin demonstrates the adaptability of the actor to his architecture with much the same striking effect that Mastriani achieves in demonstrating the alienation of the actor from his architecture in Antonioni's La Notte. And I wanted to get that all in there because I know Jason, uh, when we did our episode on blow up, you talked about having watched La Notte. Uh, did it did, remind you of this?
1: No, n- not at all. <laughs> and not and I didn't like it. And uh, Andrew Saris's foot must hurt from all that name dropping
2: he
1: did <laughs> in that. <laughs> it reminded me of Elan Blue Blah blah. Right. And I like <laughs> Take that Saris. I just made fun of you. No, but I mean, like, who's that review for? Like, three people
0: in college or something? I mean, that's, I I think, as we've talked about, uh, or at least as I've talked about a bunch in this season, this is how movie reviews were in 1967. (laughs) And it's kind of awesome, I think. Uh, It is,
1: it is kind of awesome. Kind of awesome review year would be a much worse podcast. But, um, yeah, look, I feel like we're all film educated, and that was a hard review for me to follow right there.
0: That's fair. I mean, I think, well, I also wanted to get not only the reference specifically to Antonioni and Lanote, but... The French New Waves. Yeah, the yeah. Fr- and, and and specifically to Alain Rene and his film uh, Last Year at Marion Bad, which we talked about also uh, in that episode on Blow Up that uh, Pauline Kael was comparing it unfavorably. Um, and that is a super pretentious film, which I don't care for, but I can see how... The idea here is applying that sort of art house structure to this conventional thriller.
1: But no, I mean, nothing happens in La Notte. That's the whole thing is, right? right. It's like, a, it's an Antonioni movie where it's just like, uh, we're talking, we're philosophizing, we're deciding if we should stay together. And this, like, whatever flaws you might find in it, a lot of
0: stuff happens in this one, you know? That's so. true. And I think for me, that was what I liked about this movie versus, say, Blow Up, where Blow Up kind of hints at like there's a mystery or a crime story, and then just it falls apart as soon as it starts, essentially. And this movie really follows through with uh, maybe up until the very end with the crime story, but balances it with those artier touches. And I think that all works really well. Yeah.
1: And also, can we just say, Alain is such a lovelier way of saying it than we say here in America, Alan. <laughs> So screw you, everyone named Alan. I, I mean, wouldn't you rather be like introduced as Alain? You know, that's so uh, I mean, but if elegant, you, if you know? were an
0: American and you named your kid Alan, you <laughs> would get beat up a lot by future Lee Marvins. Maybe they
1: would
2: beat up the parents instead of the, the actual. The only Alain. time I ever got beat up in school was by an Alan. Is that true? Wow. Yeah. Well, Tell it, us. Was an, it was an Alan, but you know. oh, okay. <laughs> so he, didn't, did, he didn't go by Alan? <laughs> no, but I, I should have called him Alan. It wasn't, you know. <laughs> why did I, Why
1: did he beat you up? He was just a mean bully. That's oh, he like, was a bully. Yeah, that's not you know, good. We should have Marvin to him. So. Yeah, <laughs> that's what you need.
0: So, well, Jason, if you thought that Andrew Saris review was pretentious, <laughs> wait till you hear the review from Manny Farber in Art Forum, who said. Whatever this fantasy is about, it is hardly about syndicate heist artists, nightclub owners, or a vengeful quest by a crook named Walker for the 93,000 he earned on the quote Alcatraz drop. The movie is really about a strangely unhealthy tactility. All physical matter seems to be coated. Buildings are encased in grids and glass. Rooms are lined with marble and drapes. Girls are sculpted by body stockings, metallic or velour-like materials. A subtle pornography seems to be the point, but it is obtained by the camera slithering like an eel over statuesque women from ankle across thigh, around hips to shoulder, and down again. Repeatedly, the camera moves back to beds, but not for the purposes of exposing flesh or physical contact. What are shown are vast expanses of wrinkled satin, deep dark shadows, glistening silvery highlights. The bodies are dead, under sedation, drugged, or being moved in slow motion, stylistic embraces. And it goes on and on.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, when I think of pornography, subtle's the first word I like to pair with it, Josh. <laughs> well, not that, I don't mm-hmm. think he's saying that
0: pornography is subtle. No, I, I know he's,
1: but I didn't get that vibe from this at all. Like, you know, I I, I mean, look, Angie Dickinson is uh, very attractive, but I don't think this was supposed to be, a, you know, a sexy movie or anything like
0: that. No, and I think that's what he's saying here too, is that, These shots are not for the purpose of, as he says, exposing flesh or physical contact. They're sort of recontextualizing that imagery or what we would expect from sexy Angie Dickinson in a bed And making it almost grotesque because that's the life of this character he doesn't seem to have did you get that
1: were you like oh this scene with her in a lingerie is very grotesque
0: i mean not necessarily (laughs) as i was watching it but reading this i i sort of see what i think he's exaggerating here because it is sexy like they're not trying to make angie dickinson not be sexy yeah but i do think there's a certain brutality to it in the way that that walker uh, just kind of goes about everything not that he's abusing women necessarily but that he just has this sort of brutal nature to him and that scenes with him aren't necessarily and, and, and her aren't necessarily sexy or titillating they're kind of kind of grotesque yeah even when they fight and then make love to one another yes would you
1: call it that even or would you say
0: i don't know if it's making i think he has some tenderness for her to whatever degree he's able to feel anything for anyone, but making love might be an example. Yeah, well, in
1: his defense, you know, as we'll get into, right, his best friend and his wife betray him and shoot him and leave him for dead on Alcatraz, which, you know, if you're going to leave someone for dead, that's a good place to leave him, you would think, you know, you would uh, think so, uh, you know. Uh, I could see him being pissed off at everybody at that point in
0: time. No, he has a good reason to be pissed off, and they give him many more good reasons to be pissed off as the movie goes on. So that's fair. But I think there's also a sense that that's kind of his character even before this. Well, I mean, that's Lee Marvin
1: in a lot of ways, right? Maybe not in some of those fun Western musicals, but, you know lee marvin that is his persona yes yeah. i hope
0: he was you know more joy- joyful or jovial as a, an actual human being i, I don't mean know. do you read some of his quotes
1: i had not no because oh, it's like uh it's it kind of fits the character like i was reading he was offered the part of i think quinn and uh, jaws you know and he turned it down and he was like what am i supposed to tell my fishing buddies that i beat some dumb idiot shark in a goddamn <laughs> ocean or something like I can't take a fucking dummy shark or something like that either. is that is that
0: a verbatim quote
1: I can find you the quote, but I promise you, it's not that far off.
0: Yeah. Well, so maybe it's it's a perfect marriage of role and actor here. I do think Lee Marvin is great in this movie.
1: Yeah. Well, you should. It's your pick. You I, have to, Josh. I don't have to. We. Well, it would be weird if you picked it and you were like, "Hey, I uh, picked it because I think this actor's so bad in this."
0: Well, movie. true. Although we had, a, was it last season, one of your picks that you were kind of uh, lukewarm on, and Dave and I liked more. Yeah, it so, was just all right. You know, it could happen. pick, pick mm-hmm. yeah, pick movies for various reasons. But no, I do think this movie is great. And I think Lee Marvin is great. And I mean, when I saw this movie for the first time, I was impressed and really enjoyed it. I mean, that was why I picked it. But I think I liked it even more watching it this time that I kind of didn't entirely know what to expect the first time. And uh, now knowing going in that it had this kind of like -like, dreamlike, nonlinear quality, I was able to appreciate that even more. So I think I think that's
1: uh, that could be the case this is my first time watching it so i can't say that i do want to know about when you first saw but let me read you some lee marvin oh good. here this is what he said about the movie business you spend the first 40 years of your life trying to get in this business and the next 40 years trying to get out and then when you're making
0: the bread who needs it <laughs> <laughs> and yet he kept going he didn't retire
1: right right so uh that was one of um oh here the jaws quote when he was offered Quint. What would I tell my fishing friends who'd see me come off as a hero against a dummy shark? I mean, that's why you turn down the role as an actor because you you don't know what's still your fishing
0: buddies or something And like do his fishing buddies frequently like fight sharks and they would think he was a wuss for fighting a fake shark yeah
1: i mean are they his managers and agents as well like he's an actor he's acting right 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 or maybe he's not like that anymore
0: (laughs) well yeah because now uh they all they
1: all probably died from chain smoke that's true yeah Yeah, they died
0: off but uh
1: so you can see where i'm saying the character and at least from the quotes the human being look like they combine and uh that's clearly not a good lee marvin impression but that feels like the personality of lee marvin (laughs)
0: yeah it's more of an impression of the vibe than the actual guy he's
1: all bristle and gristle right there that
0: that he is so
1: josh when did you first see this
0: uh it wasn't that long ago actually it was probably just a few years ago um and it was just something that had I don't know, been on my list of things to watch forever and it came up in my Netflix queue or something like that. And I watched it. So like I said, I didn't really necessarily know what to expect. It was just like, oh, I'll watch this. It's 90 minutes. And uh, and I really liked it. I do, uh, well, Dave and I had recently done a podcast on it last year, but I always do a list of uh, my favorite movies that I saw for the first time that didn't come out that year. And that was, I think, number one on my list when I saw it. So Whoa. And Dave, had you seen it before? I had not. No,
2: I'd always seen the the poster for it. It's It's a great poster. Yeah, it's one of those recognizable ones.
1: Yeah, it is a great poster. And Josh, it actually reminded me, this feels like it's in line with your 1977 pick, The Late Show. Yeah, Yeah. I I
0: mean, I like that kind of hard-boiled crime. And especially when they have a sort Of subversive, subversive take on it. I mean, The Late Show is a very different kind of movie, but it also sort of plays with the form yeah. of that, that genre. So, Dave, uh, when did you first see the poster?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to get back to you. Oh, no. <laughs> Fair it was enough. Damn poster, and You told
1: me how great it is as a movie poster, you son of a bitch.
0: <laughs> uh, any other background that Lee Marvin wants to add on this film? <laughs> Not that Lee Marvin
1: wants to add. This was the first film shot at Alcatraz. That's pretty cool, right?
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, leading up to, and it's crazy. Like, I think we think of Alcatraz as this relic, but I think it had only closed a few years before they shot this movie. So, uh, you know, transitioning into this weird icon of uh, filmmaking all the way to The Rock. The Rock. By Michael Bay. Yeah. Hey, Josh, the other thing I wanted to say is uh, one
1: of our favorite directors here on Awesome Movie Year, Steven Soderbergh, heavily influenced by this film.
0: And that might be something more for the legacy section, but you can definitely see it in a lot of his work. Absolutely, you can. And it doesn't surprise me at all that Soderbergh was influenced by this film. So uh, we'll get into more of our thoughts on that when we come right back on Awesome Movie Year. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this season, we've been talking about the films of 1967. And this episode, we are focusing on my pick, John Borman's Point Blank, and it's my pick. But Jason, let me get your first impressions first. Did I pick a good one this time? I like it. I don't love it,
1: but I would, I kind of am interested in, you know, not right now revisiting it, but down the line revisiting it because it has garnered such a cult status. And you had said like um, going back and watching it again, you know, being a little more aware of the plot, like can help you enjoy other aspects. I did think the plot Got murky at points, and I'm like, okay, why is he killing this guy? And how did that relate to that? Um, and, you know, we see a lot of movies like that, but I think it gets a little, you know, uh, tough to follow at times. But overall, it, it was, it's just a fun, you know, breezy, hard boiled, uh, you know, revenge flick. Uh, I'm sorry that I keep using the word revenge, but payback. And I like the setting. There's some really cool set pieces, like when he takes this guy, Stegman, who's like a real dirty, greasy, uh, you know, He's part of the syndicate, but he also sells used cars. And he's like, Why don't you drive the car, Pally? See how you like it. You know, and they take him out to like the ravine, right? And he just like sees like one cement pillar and another cement pillar and he just backs like rams one side and the other you're ruining my car what am i gonna do with this right that's how he gets information information out of him and he just leaves
0: that was a really great set piece yeah that's a great scene watching it again i just thought about how great that scene is and that character is so greasy as you say and just so unctuous and i mean on both sides like he's one of those guys who's just he's like a total suck up to all of his bosses, because he's obviously way low on the totem pole. But he's also a complete screw up. And and it's just it's a great combo of that. Yeah, and, it kind of
1: reminded me of that guy in The Late Show again, the guy who had like all the businesses and was like on the periphery with Lily Tomlin, but knew, you know, all the people that, you know, Art Carney had to go see to solve the case.
0: Right, right. So that's why I think there are a lot of there are a lot of fun uh, sort of underworld characters in this movie. And I guess maybe it comes from having seen it before, but I really didn't find the plot that hard to follow this time because once you establish the idea here, which is that Lee Marvin's partner, Mal Reese, uh, has screwed him out of the money that they stole from this, the the organization or the syndicate or whatever you want to call it. uh, It's just Walker going from one guy to the next, as Ebert says and saying, pay me my money. And when that guy doesn't pay him, he goes up to the next guy until he gets to the top. But you're making it sound simple. (laughs) The way it's presented is not that
1: simple, right? So a few things, one, spoiler alert, he kills or Malreese falls to his death. Maybe he kills him, maybe he doesn't. Uh, About halfway through the movie, right? And we've built up to this huge point, right? So now it's like, well, where do we go from here? And like you said, he's going up the syndicate. But this was the guy he really had the revenge, you know, out for and everything. So and then, like you said, it is very French New wavy and dreamy and stuff like that. So it's not as simple as like, well, next you got to go get Brewster, you know, or something like that. It's a little more, uh, you know, and, and a lot of those bad guys at that point, they don't have characteristics. Right. They're just the next guy up the chain. So. There's some figuring it out to do.
0: There is. Well, I think that's the thing, is that the plot, if you just lay it out, is fairly straightforward, but the way it's presented with some of these nonlinear elements and flashes from forward and backward from different scenes makes it, uh, obscures it a little bit. And I mean, to me, that what's that's what makes this movie fascinating and what makes it more than just a hard-boiled thriller, which could still be very enjoyable and I think would be if they re-edited this movie and put it in a straightforward manner. It probably still would have been entertaining, but just not as I. It, you know, it goes to another level. I think with the way they are. You it. surprised
1: that like Steven Soderbergh wasn't like, "Hey, I had two hours before a dentist appointment, so I recut point <laughs> blank just for my own edification." So.
0: And maybe, although I feel like Soderbergh. I mean, you know, again, this might be the influence, but if you watch something like The Limey, I mean, that's clearly like the kind of way the way he approaches this uh kind of material, and and so that cross-cutting and the non-linear structure and whatever that's something that Soderbergh would add not get rid of another grizzled son of a bitch out for revenge exactly tell him I'm coming that's the same voice as Lee Marvin it's no weird. Lee Marvin's daughter, here <laughs> Terrence Stamps up here <laughs> all right
1: Excellent impressions, both. Uh, I'm not really, you know, I'm going for moods today, right. much like this
0: picture did, Josh. It is. You know? It is kind of a mood picture. Yeah. I, I think that's what's great is that even if there are moments where you're kind of unsure of what the plot is, I think this movie has a great sustained mood. And a lot of that comes from Lee Marvin's yes. performance.
1: Yeah. And he and he doesn't waver from that character, like you're saying. There's no, like, soft spot, like, listen, doll, I can't quit you, (laughs) right? He's just like, you're going to go and you're going to help me or I'm going to get you, too. (laughs) Right. so Dave, did you find it at all confusing?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's the the same reasons you were saying. It's that dreamlike quality to it that I think, like Josh is saying, it definitely does raise it up a level from just your standard thriller. But at the same time, I think it maybe requires a second viewing. I I definitely look forward to rewatching it one day.
0: Yeah. I mean, like I said, I liked it a lot the first time, but I do think I liked it a little more this time. So and something else like you were you were saying, Jason, you know, he doesn't say uh, tender things or whatever. Um, I mean, a lot of his performance is just staring is just kind of sitting and not saying things.
1: It's funny that you bring that up because there's that scene with like his ex-wife who had sold him out. Right. And did you read this when yeah. you were doing your research? And you know, in the original script, it's like him asking her questions of like, what happened? Who do I go to? You know, how do I find Mal Reese? And, you know, I need to kill him. But the way they did it was when they rehearsed it, it was just Lee Marvin, like icy glaring her down. And Borman was like, yeah, that that's better. And then so in the movie, and, you know, he shoots up her bedroom thinking that uh, Mal Reese will be there and he's not. And then, you know, she's in such a heightened state and he's just like, you know, icy, icing her with his eyes and she has no choice but to reveal each next thing, uh, uh, each next point of information.
0: Yeah, that's another great scene. And and I think, you know, you were saying that that these characters that he goes after, we don't necessarily know that much about them as characters, but I think we get, they're all distinctive people. And even if we don't get lots of backstory about who all of these people are, I think the actors bring a lot To give them personality whether it's the ex-wife or angie dickinson who is his sister-in-law that he uh eventually well those we kind of know but but even like carol o'connor who i think is so entertaining as the as brewster i think the you know uh, further up the totem pole guy you get a sense of him he has this kind of breezy like he doesn't take uh walker seriously and, you know, just the way that he's this this businessman or he's convinced himself that he's a businessman, even though he's running this criminal organization.
1: He's the best of the bunch, Carol O'Connor, of that kind of Brewster, And then even, you know, uh, Mal Reese and all the And, you know, uh, Carol O'Connor definitely pops on the screen there.
0: Yeah, he does. And there's some in the middle there. um uh, Carter, I think, is uh, right. One he's that like, he's got—is he
1: like a greasy politician? I, I yeah, mean, he's yeah. got
0: the office in a high-rise building, and yeah, yeah he's we—he's not as distinctive. But yeah, and the hitman, right? You know. The hitman, um, who I again, I felt like—I mean—that first scene, he—he he doesn't have any dialogue. Uh, he's just uh, shooting from far away with his sniper rifle. But then when when he comes back, and he's also like, in a way, he's a similar character because he's like, I did a job, and you owe me money. And Carol O'Connor is telling him that he, you killed the person who owes you money, you know? Um, but I feel like we got that personality because he's in contrast to Walker. He's not going to go on a rampage like Walker well, is.
1: Well, Josh, now Walker is always a step ahead because the syndicate, right? They're always, They're always trying to, the organization here, they're always trying to like, you know, do a murder on him before he does a murder on them. Yes. But like, they have like 20 guys in each situation. And Walker, I mean, maybe... Maybe we need a sequel where he just becomes a chess master because he's thinking six, eight moves ahead on everything and he knows where each person's going to be and how to usurp them and get past them. So some of that, uh, I mean, it's super fun, like in that scene where you talked about, you know, where we first see the hitman and he ends up killing his own guys, right? Like, that's a good one. But some of them, like, even to get into, like, Mal Reese's building, you're like, this is a bit of a stretch, you know.
0: I mean, he makes a plan and we see how he makes a plan. You know, he's driving around with Angie Dickinson and asking her, you know, what is that building? And uh, and I feel like some of it is luck, too. You know, he creates it creates a distraction across the street. By invading an apartment of what to me I think was a gay couple. I thought that was an interesting approach. I thought that too. I was happy to see that. Yeah, and they don't make a big deal out of it. But so he invades that apartment and he gets the cops to come so it distracts the guards and so he can walk into Mal Reese's apartment. But there's multiple scenes where he almost gets caught. And I think it wasn't meant to say, like, oh, he planned this so perfectly that he almost got caught, but he didn't. No, he almost got caught and he could have screwed up, but he was lucky to get there. And there's a scene where he's in the elevator and it opens and the guys are standing right outside and you can see i think on Lee Marvin's face the look of oh shit and he gets away but he might not have so i don't think it's too much mm-hmm.
1: okay well i'm i'm offering a divergent point
0: of view here that Josh. you are that's fair
1: um what about my favorite theory that i read on this movie was that the opening scene we shoot, we see Maurice, you know shoot walker pretty much opening sequence and that the whole movie is just a dream and that kind of works with like the way it's put together and, you know, kind of like uh, the layers of sound and the disparate colors and everything. Like, he's just kind of thinking either uh, of other situations uh, with these people or what could be if he is able to live. What do you think of that theory?
0: Yeah, I mean, I watched that. Uh, I don't know that I had read about that before I saw this the first time, but um, definitely this time I remembered that and kind of had that in mind. And I mean, I think that's an interesting. Theory. I don't think you have to view the movie that way. I think the movie makes sense uh, and works if it's all quote real. And and of course, if we want to go meta with it, I mean, Parker appeared in uh you know 23 more novels, so obviously wasn't meant to be dead in the source material at least. Um, but yeah, I think you can view it that way. And there's certainly not only just the dreamlike quality of the editing and and the sound design, as you mentioned, which is so good in this movie. Um. Lots but, of, this is a great year for sound design, as we're learning, right? Yeah, I think it is, really. And, and a lot of that stuff comes from the French New Wave yeah. influence of the overlapping sound. And the, there's that great sequence where uh, Walker is walking, as walkers mm. do, um, mm, down, down, a, down a hallway. And you've got the loud sound of his shoes on the floor. And that turns into almost this like percussion as he's going about uh, trying to find uh, the ex-wife.
1: Yeah, I think I had read that uh, after Lee Marvin died, Borman, uh, you know, uh, Marvin's widow asked John Borman if he wanted anything, you know, any of the mementos. And uh, that's what he wanted was the shoes from that scene, <laughs> you
0: know. Wow. Um, but yeah, I think that adds to the, the, the idea that it's a dream. And I mean, there's another thing in this movie where so he survives the shooting or, or theoretically he survives the shooting, but he's stuck on Alcatraz. And you see him kind of start to swim. And then the next thing we see is him on a boat that's sort of a tourist boat with this guide talking about how no one has ever right. escaped Alcatraz. And that, I think, is, is as clear an indication as any that maybe he didn't make it.
1: Right. Well, Soderbergh, what, what I was reading, was saying that was that the opposite of that, which was that he was saying this sets him up as kind of like this mythic figure who's able to do things that other people aren't able to do, in which case my criticism of like him being able to do things that other people aren't <laughs> able to do is somewhat moot. So,
0: I mean, I think you can look at it both ways there, that, but that either way, it's a sign of something heightened going on. It's a sign of something not natural going on.
1: Yes. Yeah, so we're talking about Alcatraz, right? And the last sequence is also Uh, in a different area of Alcatraz, right? Yeah,
0: I think so. But they return because it's this drop again. And Carol O'Connor says, this is how you're going to get your money. We're going to go back. And that drop is going to happen again. And I'll get the money and then give it to you.
1: And all that. And, you know, whatever. Uh, Twist turns, blah, blah, blah. Walker's left alone uh, at the end, unhurt, possibly with the money, possibly with another fake uh, a fugazi, if you will, Josh. (laughs) Yes. Um, But again, he's stuck on Alcatraz, you know? (laughs) And it's like... How are you going to get out
0: this time, Walker? I guess, well, I mean, he's not entirely... I guess we don't see uh, Fairfax, the mysterious character played by Keenan Wynn, who uh, at first seems to be some sort of law enforcement agent who is following along with Walker as he goes up the chain of command and turns out to be the head of the organization. He's there, and he is trying to get Walker his money, and so... It, theoretically, I suppose if Walker finally came out of the shadows and grabbed the money, then Fairfax might help him get back to land because presumably or he, might he has, kill him or he might kill him. Right? We don't know, and it's this very this unresolved, ambiguous ending, which I think could go towards the theory of him not being alive because he's not able to, even when the money is sitting right there, he's not able to get it. Uh, or, or could you just be a sort of a thing about his his psyche? And once you get He's so consumed with the quest for the money that once the money is actually there he doesn't know doesn't what to matter.
1: do. Well, the most important point on Keenan Wynn is his real name. Did you read his real name? Francis Xavier Aloysius James Jeremiah Keenan Wynn. That's a name for you right there. That is. And uh, uh had he not shortened it wouldn't
0: it have been fun to
1: see that in the credits. So,
0: well. <laughs> That would have been something. I don't think uh, Hollywood at the time would allow you to have a name like that. I don't even know it now. It might be a little too much. So it's, it's a little overboard. It is. It is. But good for him. And he's he's good. I mean, he is just this mysterious character. But he you talk about Walker being one step ahead. He's always one step ahead of Walker.
1: Well, yeah, he's running the whole organization. Right.
0: But you don't realize. And, you know, there's that scene where he's telling Walker about Carol O'Connor's character. And he says, oh, yeah, you know, he's out of town, but he's going to come home and he lives in this house. That's kind of a safe house. And Walker's like, where's the house? And like, we're there right now. It's where we're standing. Yeah. So that's yeah. impressive.
1: Yeah. The only other scene that I really wanted to discuss was uh, the nightclub scene, because there's a lot of energy and it really puts you in a time and a place, which I like in a movie. Right. You feel like you could have been in that club and um, a really good soul singer, like getting the audience, like all involved. And so everyone's all jovial and joyous, and Walker's just like figuring out how do I walk backstage and punch a dude in the face,
0: and punch a dude in the nuts. Then
1: later, <laughs> that too. was that's an amazing <laughs> nut punch too, because he doesn't do it at the angle that we're like used to. He's kind of reversed; like he's by the guy's face facing down towards his testicular area, and he just kind of drops the bomb. Right
0: on those balls, and that's a
1: great ball punch
0: there. That that is, um, but I agree with you. That's a great scene, and I think you know again to contrast it to Blow Up, we have that scene in Blow Up with the Yardbirds, where as great as the Yardbirds are, you watch that scene and you're like, why, why? Yeah. Um, but to me, this scene with and I forget the guy's name, it's Stu something. He's credited with some with an original song as well. Yeah, and, no. it's great. I yeah. don't
1: know his name either, but you know maybe if they had punched Jeff Beck in the balls in blow up that would have been a thing
0: it might have been and and the other thing i love about the song and maybe there's more to it if you go by the soundtrack or something but the singer all he ever just says is yeah and whoa <laughs>
1: i love it it's you know very you know sam cook james brown of that time obviously they had <laughs> lyrics but you know there was that uh, that call and uh Refrain style, you know, where you're getting the audience to vibe with you and everything. I love that.
0: No, I loved it too. And, and it's got some of this psychedelic imagery that we, you know, always associate with this time period is there's kind of projections on the wall that eventually are projected onto Walker's face as he makes his way backstage. So just a visually striking scene. I mean, visually, this movie is the sound design is great, but the visuals are great too. And just the color coordination, um, the sort of ugly yellows that Parker wears that go along with what his ex-wife is wearing. Um, and just, just the way that things kind of match up. So um, yeah, I think just like a, from a Walker? technical, what
1: you mean Walker,
0: did I say, did I not say Walker? You said Parker. Oh yeah. There you go. Yeah. I'm, I'm confusing it, but uh, yes, Walker. Now who this- is Parker? This is a dreamlike sequence <laughs> that we're experiencing Dave, Dave can you edit this podcast out of order? <laughs> we'll see what happens. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, let's get to the part in the order where we rate it, shall we, Josh? Yeah, let's do that. Put that first, Dave. <laughs> yes. Uh, out of five punches to the balls, which I feel like we've done before.
0: So five upside down punches to the balls. Sure. Yeah. Was there Was a ball punching in Bad Santa that we talked about, I there think? There was
1: so much ball punching in that one <laughs> it's scene. It's just so. the cinematic history of ball punching. Yeah, but you know what? That's a very memorable memorable ball punch as well so i think we're at, at least for punches to the groin we're picking some fine films Josh. Mm, yeah
0: we are so this one gets three upside down punches to the balls from me all right i'm gonna give it four punches to the balls I, I like i said i liked it before i i liked it even more now i think it's it's great and and maybe still a little underrated even though it's become uh, a cult favorite over the years so, uh, Dave, how many punches to the balls do you want to give this? I'm going with
2: three, but I do think it would probably go up a little bit next time.
0: All right. More ball punches to come. Yes. <laughs> yes. So we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of Point Blank. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1967, We've been talking about my pick, which is John Borman's Point Blank. And as we said, this was Borman's second film after his uh, Dave Clark Five epic Catch Us If You Can. And those two films presumably are very different. And as Jason mentioned, he went on to have a varied career in a lot of different genres. I mean, he was kind of a journeyman director, even though he directed a lot of notable movies. Um, Not only this, Deliverance, certainly his most famous film. Um, but also, uh, Excalibur, which is a big King Arthur epic, um, and the notorious Zardoz starring, uh, Sean Connery, which could be our, uh, our flop pick for whatever year that is. That's one of the most notorious failures ever.
1: Well, also was it in like 87 hope and glory. And he, I mean, the thing is he wrote a lot of his movies to wrote, directed, produced hope and glory was like nominated for a lot of Oscars, very well-regarded. So. I think he's a little more than a journeyman. He might be like, you know, right under that level of the A list where you're like, if you can't get one of the big three to five, you go to a Borman. but you know, uh deliverance is uh, iconic, you know, and
0: uh, and deservedly so. yeah, I, I haven't seen deliverance in a long time, but I mean, of course, deliverance is one of those movies that there's bits of it that are so heavily like referenced and parodied that I think it's right. hard to appreciate now.
1: But it's no but you
0: know what we're talking about here
1: how he uses like um the space and everything. I remember that from Deliverance like using that landscape in a very effective way and Ned Beatty just died in that sad because he was a very very
0: excellent actor. That he was and is great in that. And speaking of Hope and Glory, the last movie Borman is still alive but hasn't worked in a while, but the last movie he made was called Queen and Country in 2014 which was sort of a pseudo sequel to Hope mm. and Glory apparently. He also
1: directed a documentary called lee marvin a personal portrait by john borman based just on the two movies they did together.
0: yeah well i mean obviously they were friends as we said that's the reason that borman got the chance to direct point blank in the first place so um yeah that sounds like it would be it would be interesting and but yeah have you seen hope and glory uh jason no i have not Josh. Oh, neither, neither have i I think Dave watched Zardoz for some reason recently. I
2: watched it last night, yeah. I, I've always wanted to, and I figured I'd watch it for this. It's, tell us it's, about it. It's completely insane. Like, I'm not going to sit here and tell you it's good, but that is a movie that only could exist in that very specific moment in time like it is completely maybe the craziest thing i've ever seen
0: wow and this is coming from dave the super fan of the room yes
2: craziest thing you've ever seen now we got to watch this thing
0: yeah i i I am curious to see it i mean i have been you know just in general because it's so notorious so yeah
2: Yeah. i'd love to check that out just horrifying (laughs) (laughs) you're just selling
1: me on this
0: you gotta watch it
1: yeah uh Lee Marvin for such a big star, I really haven't seen that much of his work
0: yeah I've seen a few I mean he was big as you kind of referenced in westerns in uh you know like the fifties and and sixties and uh just known as this tough guy as we've been talking about this whole time, so yeah, actually, I think the year I mentioned this on my my top ten list of first time watches, and I also that year watched a movie called the Killers, which mm. is also features Lee Marvin in a smaller role as kind of a tough guy henchman and that was another great movie that I had on my list that year that I believe also has Angie Dickinson Yeah, I was going
1: to say Angie Dickinson's that and uh Lee Marvin Oscar winner for Cat Ballou. Have you ever seen No, oh, I have not seen Cat Ballou. Me neither.
0: But it's fun to say.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully we're saying it correctly.
0: I think we are. It does have Seems the
1: right. It does have the word ball in it, so maybe he punches a cat in the Ball?
0: I mean, that sounds like a thing that you would win an Oscar for. So,
1: <laughs> yes. uh, I started this sentence and I had nowhere to go with it, but I kept going. you man- managed to make it work. So. Yeah, he was also in the Dirty Dozen. Okay, moving on. Yeah,
0: that was the movie he was doing right right before this. So, I know I too have not seen a ton of Lee Marvin movies. I think I've seen some westerns where he plays the heavy, you know, and he's perfect in in that kind of stuff. But um, could definitely see more.
1: Angie Dickinson and Carol O'Connor found even greater famous television stars. Angie Dickinson won, I think, three Emmys for Policewoman, uh,
0: where she played a policewoman. Oh, wow. Yeah. Not a cat being punched in the balls?
1: <laughs> uh, I've never seen Policewoman, but I'm going to stick with my uh, assumption there. And Carol O'Connor, of course, Archie Bunker, and uh, All in the Family, you know, most iconic, groundbreaking uh, sitcom that there was in the 70s. Also, interestingly enough, he went on to star In, in the Heat of the Night. The TV series is based on the film, which could be something that we <laughs> just draw that suspense out. <laughs> cover in a future episode. Yeah. Coming up in this
0: very season. All right. Season. It. Yes, that is true. And <laughs> this novel, uh, The Hunter by uh, Donald Wesley, 8K, Richard Stark. As I said, it's the first novel featuring his character named Parker, who is often renamed for whatever reason in movies, which I mean, as you say, like, what's wrong with Parker is like a pretty solid. I'm guessing the reason that character is named Parker is because he was thinking, what is this kind of generic name that I can give to my tough guy character? Yeah, And yet they always seem to rename him in movies.
1: I have a friend and she's got a little kid is about, you know, six years old. And his name's Parker. So I don't think Parker is much of a tough guy in my mind. Well, opinion. no, I think
0: not that it's a tough guy name, but that it's just sort of a generic name. Like this isn't oh. just a guy. Well, yeah, know?
1: I'll tell her you think that she did a horrible job naming her. Well, child. but it's,
0: it's his last name, Parker. Oh, um, yeah. No, but this is the boy's first name. Right, so that's different. But so, maybe he was named after Lee Marvin. We could, well, who wasn't even named this? <laughs> right, but maybe she went and read the novels and loved them. Anyway, there were, uh, there were 24 Parker novels. Uh, stretching from 1962 to 2008. It was basically, you know, one of the the central uh, figures of Donald Westlake's career. Uh, This particular novel was also adapted as the film Payback in 1999, written and directed by Brian Helgeland, starring Mel Gibson as Porter, Mm. not Parker. Mm. Um, And Dave, I know, is a huge fan of that film.
2: Oh, yes. It was one of my favorites of, like, that era of movies, the end of the 90s into the early 2000s. Yeah. So much fun. Okay. So I liked it. I remember
1: I saw it in the theater and I really liked it. And then Dave just sent me the director's cut DVD and I was totally underwhelmed with the director's cut. Yeah. I really, really, I mean, I don't know. I'd have to watch the theatrical cut again to really kind of assert this, but I liked the theatrical cut when I saw it so much more than I like this director's cut.
0: I mean, I remember seeing it in theaters and being sort of, it didn't really make a huge impression on me either way, but uh, I know that the, the, that director's cut exists because the studio took it away from Brian Helgeland and had reshoots done with a different director and all of that.
1: Yeah, and normally I don't like
2: that, but um, in this case,
0: I seem <laughs> to be
1: siding with the syndicate. All right. Dave, which
2: which
0: version do you prefer?
2: I do prefer the theatrical cut, so I mean, you're not a totally off base there or anything like that, but uh, but it's just the original is so great.
0: And yeah. so did your love of that movie kind of color how you responded to Point Blank?
2: I I want to say it probably did, because a, a lot of the beats, obviously the same book, a lot of the beats really are so similar. Like, it is a clear remake in every oh, sense of the word. Yeah. yeah.
1: Hey, Josh, have you ever read any Donald Wesley books?
0: I have not, but I would. Um, okay. I mean, it's the kind of stuff I, I I do enjoy. I remember taking a class in college on crime fiction and we didn't read any of these, but I could totally see that fitting what in. What was the point of the class? It was to read other crime fiction books and learn about them. Name one. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> it was very memorable, obviously. Um, no, I think we might have read uh, some, some Ross McDonald and or, and, or John D. McDonald, uh, someone named McDonald. It was a good class. I, yeah. I might still have some of the books at home. Amherst for higher education. Yeah, it <laughs> was actually a, an exchange class at Hampshire College, which oh. was... Hampshire yeah oh well excuse me <laughs> I, okay I don't know what that means so Jason I know you love the the alternate casting we don't have alternate casting for this movie but di- did you look up who else has played the Parker character in other films oh no but I'd like to know Josh so uh often often renamed as I say but other films based on Parker novels uh the next one the split in 1968 starring Jim Brown Hmm. So, uh, interesting, different kind of choice. Uh, Robert Duvall played the character in a movie called The Outfit in 1973. Peter Coyote Hmm. played him in a movie called Slayground in 1983, (laughs) which is a great title and I think probably not the title of the novel.
1: Peter Coyote has that voice of a grizzled guy who needs revenge.
0: He does. And possibly the only movie that actually uses the character's name, Parker from 2013, starring Jason Statham. Mm,
1: Yeah, well, we like Jason Statham, and Robert Duvall's like the greatest actor who, you know, he's of that level of Paul Newman to me. Uh, Did you see Parker, that movie?
0: I didn't. I've seen a lot of uh, lesser Jason Statham movies, but not that. But I think, you know, we were talking about who is a modern Lee Marvin. I feel like Jason Statham is kind of a modern Lee Marvin. Mm,
1: Yeah, that's true. I like that pick there, Josh.
0: So, yeah, I don't know if that's one of the better Statham uh, thrillers, but... uh, I I'd, I'd watch all of those honestly like reading this last night I thought oh I should have it would have been great to have a chance to do a parker marathon.
1: Oh awesome Westlake here. Sure, why not. So. Josh, you know I got to bring this up. Bruce Springsteen has a song called Point Blank and one of the working theories is that it was based on this film with lyrics like I was going to be your Romeo you were going to be my Juliet. These days you don't wait on romeos you wait on welfare checks which While the ex-wife was not waiting on welfare checks and neither was Chris. They were being paid off by the syndicate and, you know, living that type of
0: life, Josh. It seems like a stretch, but I appreciate that you've got Springsteen in there. He
1: has written songs based on movies before. Yeah. uh, Has he
0: ever commented on his feelings on this film? I don't
1: think he has, but this would seem like it would go along and, you know, something he would like.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Um, And you mentioned Steven Soderbergh, obviously influenced by this, and I believe did a a commentary on a DVD release of this as well. Yeah,
1: I always think of Out of Sight because of the colors and the way that Borman played with like, this is the color of this scene. And, you know, Soderbergh would sequence whole, uh, you know, geographical
0: locations based in color schemes. Yeah, Um, I I mean, to me, that seems like a a clear uh, path from one to the other. So uh, anything else on the legacy here you want to mention? Nah, I talked about Bruce Springsteen. I'm good. I got a little piece. All right. Oh, you got, Dave?
2: Yeah. Well, while I was watching it, you know, watching Lee Marvin, I thought a little bit of Lieutenant Frank Drebin from The Naked Gun. And it turns out David Zucker said his inspiration for Frank Drebin, Lee Marvin, and Clint Eastwood. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I could
0: see that.
1: Hey, Dave, did it remind you of any movie that you and I saw this year? What What Calendar year of 2021. (laughs) What movie would that be? Trying
2: to blanket. the Bob
1: Odenkirk movie that we, the first. Uh, nobody. About,
2: yeah, there you go. It kind of feels very much like this. Yeah, movie. I could totally see that that story being one of these uh, Parker stories.
0: Yeah, I think there's. I mean, you can talk about a lot of revenge type movies, even the John Wick movies, and and I think the idea here of him being obsessed with obtaining something that right. many of the characters feel like has little to no value. Yes is is a big thing in movies like that. Uh, much like this podcast. <laughs> yeah. So if someone steals this podcast, we're going to go on a rampage to get it back.
1: We'll have to NFT it and sell it out. So Yeah. So, I, don't, I don't know how to do
0: that, guys. That's okay. <laughs> it's not worth much. <laughs> so that is Point Blank, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. You can. Hooray. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on
1: Facebook and Instagram. J Harris Comedy on Twitter. Go for Jason.com. Lee Marvin, go and kill that website already, would you? <laughs> We're at AwesomeMovieYear.com. AwesomeMovieYear on Facebook and Instagram. AwesomeMoviePod on Twitter. Thanks for all the feedback. We love everybody.
0: Yeah, except that one person. <laughs> you know you, who you are. Yeah, we don't have to say it. You know. <laughs> you can find me at JoshBellHatesEverything.com, where I did once write something about Point Blank. Uh, at Josh Bell hates everything on Facebook and at signal bleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, piecing it together. Check out piecing it together, wherever you listen to podcasts
2: and follow us on social media at piecing pod.
1: Hey Josh, since we're, uh, plugging other podcasts, may I please my new other podcast, Josh. Oh, all right. Oh, thank you, Josh. (laughs) Now, Josh, this doesn't take away my affinity from you and it's got nothing to do with movies. It's a food podcast, everybody, called Food and Loathing. It's me and uh, food writer Al Mancini, and we take you through the Las Vegas food scene in our own eyes. I've written about food for a long time, so has Al. And uh, I think it's pretty cool. I hope you guys give it a listen. Let us know what
0: you think. Movies and food, what more could you want? Yeah, they go together very well. I look forward to listening to it. Thanks. That's why I love you, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) And what do we have on our next episode, Jason?
1: Josh, the next episode, we're doing the foreign film of 1967. You can't do the 60s and 1967. Did he make three movies in 1967?
0: He did, yeah. Jean-Luc Godard, Weekend. So tune in next time for Weekend, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to
2: Awesome Movie
0: Year. Make
2: sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple
0: Podcasts.